Please be aware that some of the descriptions in this podcast are quite graphic, as they involve the loss of a limb and subsequent hospital scenes. So please listen with caution. When you start thinking about who just might be on the short list as the world's greatest all-time endurance athlete, the guy we call one arm Willie Stewart, pretty good choice. Who else has done the Ironman Triathlon World Championship, completed the Leadville 100 mountain bike race 10 years in a row, finished Escape from Alcatraz, kayaked the Grand Canyon, medaled at the Paralympics in cross-country skiing, became the first army amputee to finish Leadman, which is brutal, and won the Catalina Marathon overall. The guy is just a beast. This is Beyond, a podcast about people doing extraordinary things. Besides being a total badass, Willie has also served as an amazing role model for SCAF athletes. Willie understands that when he finishes the Ironman or Leadville or wins the Catalina Marathon overall, he's showcasing what challenged athletes worldwide are able to accomplish. He's opening doors for so many others who want nothing better than to be the next Willie Stewart. The guy changes lives for the better every single day. That's the voice of Bob Babbitt, Ironman Hall of Famer, talking about Ironman and endurance athlete Willie Stewart, a champion in both athletic terms and in his support of disabled and adaptive athletes everywhere. My name is Eric Yulsonen, bringing you another episode of Beyond. Beyond is about triathletes, but it isn't about race results, rankings, or just the pros. It's about the humans who are drawn into this great sport, their backstories and life-changing events that drew them into triathlon, and in turn, what triathlon did for them and to them. This episode of Beyond is about Willie Stewart, the then Allstate wrestler whose life changed dramatically while working a summer job atop the Watergate office building in Washington, DC. Willie's story is a plain spoken and compelling one, a story of redemption. I mean, it can make me emotional thinking about it because there was so much happened in that half hour of my life. Every little piece I can play it through, every drop of blood I remember, every stare and every, every frightening face I saw, I will never forget those. But that saved my life. In an active lifestyle, that changed who I was at that time and that I gained courage, personal courage, because I exposed myself to embarrassment. Here's part one of Willie's two-part story, The Fall. Washington, D.C., summer 1980, the other Watergate incident. I had lost my arm when I was 18 years old and I was on the Watergate building in Washington, DC. And I was working a summertime job and I was a wrestler and undefeated wrestler and I was going to, uh, off to school in the, in the fall. It was a Friday morning and, and I was working in the cooling system of the Watergate building in Washington and we were pulling off an old roof, putting it on a new roof, summertime job, manual labor, but I loved it outside. And um, uh, I asked for a rope from a newer employee 
and he threw the rope in, but the rope went over the shaft that drives the cooling fans of a 15-story monstrous building. And that rope the, loosens the rope wrapped around my arm and sucked me up into the fan and ripped my, and I'll, I'll use a visual, but ripped, cut to the bone right at the elbow and cleaned it off to the hand and knocked my hand off and then had nothing but white bone in my, at that time, my bicep rolling down the arm. But when the arm came off, I just thought I broke a lot of bones and I knew I was hurt fairly bad. But I was, I was conscious and I was aware of what was happening and, and I was getting my wits about me and I realized that I was being smacked by warm blood. And I also realized uh, within seconds after I saw my hand in front of me that I looked over and only looked over for a brief moment and I realized my arm was gone. I remember trying to crawl out, but I, I fell on my face and I cut myself again. And I had, had a really hurt, bad injury to my hip at the same time because I was smashed up into the fan. And luckily my arm came off. And I picked the hand up and I threw that off to a, a guy and I dove through the hole, which is about six feet away, and rolled out on the ground feeling I would pass out. And I was still bleeding pretty badly. And I reached over and I pushed my bicep, and my bicep went up into the, the void, and the blood slowed down quite a bit. And I still wasn't passing out, and I grabbed a hold of my arm and held it, and I, I do remember I, the white bone sticking out. And I got up and everyone said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to the hospital. And my brother was there and he, uh, I think he, it affected him more than me at that moment because I was pretty clear what I wanted to do because I was really wanting pain management at that moment. And I told him to go get, an, to get the ambulance, so he sprinted. And I went straight ahead to the edge of the building and there was a, a debris pan from the old roof hanging on the edge of the building 15 stories above New Hampshire Avenue in Washington, D.C. And I jumped out in that pan and I signaled to the ground the, the crane operator. And I went down to the ground and I realized my brother saw that I was coming down and he jumped in a truck and I jumped in the back of the truck and was driving through cones and traffic and rush hour traffic in Washington, D.C. And I'm still, I have a, at this point a, a shirt, a guy covered it with but my brother got stuck in traffic and was driving through a park and I knock and I said stop and he goes why and I you're killing me and I jumped out of the truck and then I was in traffic but down the best way in traffic is down the middle of the lane there's no cars and traffic stop and I vividly remember 
running down the street of New Hampshire Avenue and my bone catching it in the corner of my eye and I didn't want to see it, but my arm's moving and I'm running and I remember seeing my reflection in the, in the windows of the cars as I was driving by and I didn't, you couldn't tell who I was. You couldn't tell that I was, I, I, I looked awful. And at that same time, in the cars, the light, the eyeballs of the passengers in those cars were freaking out. That, which is emotional to me, that looking at someone and seeing they're so destroyed and they look at you as if you're a monster, but I'm, and, and, and that stuck. That moment, the lady in that car stuck, that reflection of myself and her face in the same time. And as I'm running up New Hampshire, I get it to Washington Circle where George Washington University <clears throat> Medical Center is. And my brother at that point somehow had gotten a hold of my father. And my father's coming up E Street from his office and I'm running into the hospital and my father and I's lives collide. And he grabs and, and I can see he's just destroyed by what I what happened to me and if you have a child imagine that and then my life changed from that moment and my father um yeah because I had a kind of a tough time with my father as a wrestler and wanting to be a, a fairly decent athlete and I don't think he believed that I could achieve what I had already done and and I did it. And I was an undefeated state champion. And then a few weeks later, I'm laying on the back in a hospital, <clears throat> looking up. I remember the IVs, the beeps, the sounds. And I, I remember, well, this is not a dream. And that's, <clears throat> that was the beginning of a new life. But it wasn't the best life at that time. But I was alive. You're embarrassing the family. When I was younger, I, I had the distinction of holding a state record of being the fastest person pinned. And I come from a large Irish Catholic family and tons of cousins and relatives and a very thuggish family. And my mom is from a huge family. And I have, there's six boys in my family and two girls. And, and everyone's very competitive somewhat. But in the pugilistic sports, my family is competitive in pain. <laughs> and, and I was little, and they're big. And I wrestled, and my family came, all the cousins and the aunts and uncles came to watch Willie wrestle. And I'm a varsity wrestler, and I'm not that, I'm a pretty good wrestler for a freshman in high school. 
But I, they go in there and they're all over there and they're watching and within 14 seconds I'm pinned. Match is over. I wasn't too bummed about it. It's just what happens in sports. Sometimes we're not that great. But you go back and you work hard. And I saw my brother's faces and they're, they, we, you know, your brothers, so you, you can't stand each other all the way through high school. And they went to different schools. We actually wrestled against the schools that they went to. Our family was not tight as in, I got your back. And my father comes down out of the stands and I'm kind of embarrassed because I got pinned in 14 seconds or 16 seconds. But nonetheless, being pinned from the whistle and the match is over. <laughs> it was humiliating. I didn't think the cheerleader girls were going to be, hey, let's go out and hang out with that guy. And I was kind of a dorky kid. And so I'm walking out and there was an old Lifesaver commercial where the father gives his son a Lifesaver and puts his arm around him and says, it's okay, we'll get him next time. Instead, my father, who I, I love dearly and has passed away, but my father puts his arm around me and pulls me close and says, hey, hey, Willie. Uh, I was talking to your brother Marty, and Marty says you're, you're embarrassing the family. And maybe this sport isn't for you. And I kind of pulled away from my dad, and for four years I pulled away from my dad. And I worked really hard at my craft at that time, which was wrestling. And I played rugby and football, but wrestling was the one I, I felt brought me notoriety and, and gave me personal pride through the way I pursued excellence in that sport. And when he did that, I, I, I didn't trust him. And so it was the intersection of the moment I lost my arm to the first time that I actually knew my father really actually loved me. I wasn't a kid that needed to get out of the house and move as soon as you turned 18. Uh, I wasn't this kid that was a loser, it was pinned in 14 seconds, that he had no faith in that could come back and still be a good wrestler. I wasn't this kid that I thought losing was okay. It was how we presented ourselves and played the game. If I tried my hardest and I lost, I would think your father would hug you. So at that moment, I pulled back, but then the moment four years later, after all my successes, but still retracted from my father, we collide in the street and his son has his arms sticking out missing and he is buckling because you can tell that that's his child and i imagine now and that looking back and all that a child born with a disability or acquires a disability or a child that's isolated and left out and, and my dad probably was visualizing all the struggles i would have as a person disabled in an enabled society and That's the kind of stuff that changes your life. And that to this day is what I don't, I don't, I don't support things that isolate people and create loneliness. I create, and I probably love sport more than anything because of the camaraderie of the community strengthens me. And if it strengthens me, it certainly strengthens others. I sense the emotion that I grabbed, not just from my father, but I, because of the nature of who I've worked with, people with disabilities since the 1981, 82, and here we are, and watching kids and adults and families struggle with the transition of the new life 
different with a disability or a child born. And the strength that we get when I see those parents realize that your kid's gonna be okay, but you've gotta believe in your children. You believe in your child, and that belief in your child creates courage in your children. And it creates courage in your community. And it also lifts the boats of many. So when we isolate people because of what they appear to look like or what they appear to be capable of, rather than giving them the opportunity to expand their life at the highest levels of citizen involvement, community involvement, it's really, really rough to see that and I was that I was the guy that would have looked at a kid missing his arms his legs or in a wheelchair and I would have felt sorry for him and then I realized that I had it all wrong sometimes it takes being thrown in the gutter to see that everyone's pretty darn close and we all need the same things we all need something to help inspire us someone to believe in us to give us the courage to go on to be the best we can be but it's hard to be the best you can be when no one gives you an opportunity or access. And, and I've seen what happens when people have those opportunities. I'm inspired. And I'll be inspired by the next race I do and the one I hope to do when I'm 90. I'll be inspired by the other racers. Not because they're racers, because they had courage to toe the line and they inspire their community to be better. And that's what I learned about people with disabilities, that they inspire me when they are brave and when they're strong and when they believe in themselves. But it's awful hard to believe in yourself when you feel like you have the foot on your back and you're laying on the ground. It's hard to get up unless someone helps you up. But once you're up, help others. And that's the beauty of sport and running. I mean, a 5K race isn't about winning the 5K race. A 5K race sometimes is about towing the line. And towing the line can be one of the hardest things we do. Meanwhile, back at the hospital. So, I, I arrive at the hospital door, they knew someone was hurt really bad and the paramedics were stabilizing that person, which was me. And so they knew that any minute, not any minute, but within the next half hour, and it's gotta be 8.30 in the morning, within the next half hour, there'll be a, a trauma coming in to the emergency room. But they didn't, they had no idea that I was running. And I ran, so from my father I ran, and then we hit, and we go through the doors, and I just kept going in. And I was in a lot of pain at this time. I, I was functioning, I was coherent, I was functioning well, but I knew I, I wanted to be relieved of that pain. And that was my goal to get there, was to relieve suffering. And so I burst into the next door, the next layer of, so you have your, <laughs> you have your paperwork fill out area. I cruise past that into where are the physicians and the nurses and the, the techs and just stumble in and just a pool of blood, 
trailing behind me. I mean, I'm just a, a mess. And they look, and I startled everybody, and everything, all hell breaks loose. Coffee hits the ceiling, donuts go flying. It, lo it looks like I'm attacking them. All I wanted from them was to be knocked out. If you see old movies of the table in the morgues, there's the chrome colored tables. And that was what was in the hospital. It wasn't a comfortable bed. It was a, it was a spot where you could do emergency work. And I'm on the table now and they're scrambling around and everyone, it's just very hectic moment. And it, it's great because I'm in there by myself. So I'm getting a lot of attention, which I felt pretty comfortable with. And I was felt pretty successful that I got there pretty darn fast. All I wanted them was to knock me out. So I'm laying on my morgue table and glass is popping, breaking, and they're doing their thing. And they're stabilizing me and they're calling orthopedic surgeons and plastic surgeons. And they're getting, they're, they're doing on, they want to know where my hand is and we can put the hand back on. I'm listening to this whole conversation and it's surreal what's going on because they're professionals and they're doing what they need to do. But all I'm saying, I said, can I say something? And I said, can you just knock me out or give me something? I felt like I was being ignored, but I wasn't. And they're talking about all kinds of things around me. And they were talking about my, my arm, where it was, who they need to come in to, I'm sure, to augment the bone or do the surgery and clean up. So it was a, a big team because you had wound, but bone and possibly reattaching the limb. That was what I was hearing. And they're like, oh, is he out? And they were whispering about me. Did he go out? And I had my eyes closed. And I, and I open my eyes, I'm not out. I'm not out at all. I'm actually getting mad. I would want to be out. And they were, take it easy, almost like reprimanding me for being pissed off at them. And I, just knock me out. And I found out they could knock me out because I had cocoa puffs for breakfast and they thought I would choke to death coming out of the surgery with all that food in my belly, I guess. I'm not quite sure how it worked. And so they couldn't knock me out because they had to let me digest more before they took me in the surgery. At least that's what I was told. And then I'm sure at that point, my father was standing there and I remember him. He wasn't talking. My brother was in the room, he was against the wall, but he wasn't talking either. They weren't saying anything. And I was just laying there and I wasn't talking. Just letting people do their thing. And then I did go out. I did go out and I remember waking up and I had a lot of tubes down my throat. And I'm looking up at all the things around me and my stump, which is they call stump or residual limb, and. I don't know if anybody says, hey, do you, aren't you lucky you have a stump now? Just something about the word stump. Yeah. But my stump is wrapped really big and it's, and it's up in the air and there's tubes sticking into that and you can see the blood coming through the bandages. And my shoulder, my, my hip actually is hurting more than anything. And and my eyes, I can barely move my head, so I can't move. And my eyes are going back and forth, back and forth. And I'm processing, and it's almost, I can, this is 30 some years ago, and I can remember my eyes just going bing, bing, like a ping pong ball, back and forth, back and forth. 
And I closed my eyes and I opened them, closed my eyes open, and that's when I came to the realization that uh, my arm was chopped off. Because a lot of that was surreal. It almost would have been like being in a, a dream state. You, you know how dreams can be so real, and you wake up and you, oh, it was a dream. And that's how I felt. I was like, this could be a dream. And it wasn't. And then, and my identity was that I was this athlete, because I certainly wasn't smart. And so, I was, I, I was definitely going to, I, I closed my eyes and had no idea what I was going to do. Peel it yourself. I think it's important that you, that people know what it's like to lay in a hospital for over a month. And some people, and I've run into people in my life that have been in hospitals with multiple surgeries and been in a hospital for almost a year. And so I had a month. But in that month, you're... People are coming in and they're not happy. They're worried about you. You can see it in every single face that visits you in the hospital. They're not celebrating what happened to you. They're worried about you, but they don't know how to communicate. And you're, ooh, every day another person walks in, you go a little lower because everyone who walks into that hospital sees you as broken and not who you were, as if who I was was great. I was 18. I mean, I, I had no idea who I was. And every day you sink a little lower because you're on your back, you're not active, you're not able to take care of yourself. And every day someone, someone thinks they're doing something good for you, but they don't realize that you're just getting more depressed. And, and I think that process of depression, even though I was in the hospital and I was under great supervision and care to an extent because you're in the hospital for 24 hours and your, your system changes, everything changes because you're, you're not who, you're not the person you were anymore. You're, you're have no independence. You have nothing. You're in a bed and you don't move right or left for days. And I was, there was a few things in the hospital that I remember vividly, but I was in there for probably about two weeks and I was hungry and there was an orange on the table. My mother was in the room and she's definitely that say less, not more person. And I reached over and I grabbed the orange and it needed to be peeled. It was a, a navel orange. And I picked up the orange and I said, Mom, could you peel this for me? And I tossed it to my mother. And my mother caught it. This is another emotional moment. But she caught it and she threw it back at me and she said, peel it yourself. So, again, she left the hospital room. She walked out. But years later is when she told me what happened. She said she broke down in the hallway. 
But she sent a message. Peel it yourself. And I did. But doesn't make it up. Didn't make that time in the hospital any better. And I was in there for quite a while longer after that. And then it took even in and out of the hospital, day in and day out, you know, and the doctor's appointments and the bone infections and the infections and the drugs and all this. I mean, it just takes a toll on you. And, and I've known people that have gone through 50, 100 surgeries, and, and those are tough, tough people. And, and you'll hear people say, he's never been the same. He's not like he used to be. And I'm like, he's pretty amazing that he's here. It's pretty tough. Why, why aren't we celebrating him or her? Gaining weakness. The reason I share a lot of the stories I share, and they are emotional to me, because I visualize pain and suffering of others that aren't me. And I'm, I'm fortunate in a way that I'm, I'm driven enough and able to sustain the failures to get out of the gutter. And it's hard to get out of the gutter. And if you're not me, and you're like, well, Willie did this, but I only did this. Success is not comparing yourself to me. And the fact of the matter is, I failed miserably and still had the opportunity to keep getting up. I was lucky enough to have multiple occasions to get back up. And so, Think of the pressure if you're a newly injured or a parent with a child born without limbs or a child that's in a wheelchair and you can't visualize your child's success. So your child's going to fail and you're actually going to run to help the child rather than to maybe just guide the child to get back up and understanding that when I had one arm, I failed a thousand times more than I ever failed when I had two. And that was the benefit that I had down the road, is I knew what it was like to get back up and I'd be okay. And a lot of people can't keep getting up. And so when I visualize what happens to people and families when injuries happen to them or something in childhood or birth, they're, take, they're, they're overwhelmed. And it's emotional to me because I see my father, my brother, my mother, my family, my cousins, my sisters. It's an overwhelming burden put on the person with a disability to get up. And like I said, I was lucky enough to keep getting up, but I had the opportunities to get up. And how many opportunities do we have to fail in life when we just ultimately become a failure? Or labeled that, or you can't, 
and I'm talking about everyone, able-bodied, disabled, it's hard to fall over and over and over and keep getting up. And not all of us have that in us, but all of us should understand that that struggle of getting up is appreciated. And people should take their hats off to that rather than feel sorry for that person and say, that's a tough person. That's someone I admire. What's interesting is that when I got out of the hospital, I had no direction. But I remember sitting, and I'm home the first day of the hospital, and I'm home alone in a house where I grew up with cousins and family and all this, but it's the school day. Everyone's gone, no one's around. And I'm eating a bowl of cereal by myself at a table where usually it's just busy and hectic. It's very quiet. And I was lonely. I remember very lonely. And I think that's something looking back in hindsight that I, I learned a lot from that loneliness because I realized that that might be the thing that most of us struggle with is that disconnection, um, battling with um, this is everyone, I'm not talking about people with disabilities, battling with acceptance and value and what is successful and what is failure. And then I, I just started looking at the world differently in the value of everyone and what they bring to the table, which I would have never have seen that had I never had that quiet time alone with my bowl of cereal. And then I started realizing that everyone brings value, even the people I can't stand sometimes. They, uh, now and then they say a jewel or do something that shows kindness and empathy and the ability to relate. And most people hide that because I guess it's perceived as a weakness. So I'm, I think in my way, which I thought was weakness, is now one of my great strengths. To show emotion, to care about others that sometimes is considered a weakness. And so I was... I was more concerned with me, and I got a lot of success from that, I thought. But actually, when I lost my arm, I gained strength through the way I looked at the world. And I looked at the world and what the value was of everyone and who they are and how they're judged and how they feel. And I used to judge in the negative and I started seeing the values and positives of everyone. When you're trying to express yourself and, and it's almost all of us, I'm talking about all of, we don't want to expose ourselves as weak because we can be taken advantage of. And I really do feel I'm, I have a certain amount of toughness in me. And that toughness came from the ability to allow myself to be weak, to, to, embrace, to embrace struggle and to embrace the weakest 
perceived weakest things in our society are some of the strongest people I've ever met. And I, I wish, I wish I, uh, I wish I saw that at an earlier age, but we, um, we don't want to show that emotion because if we show the emotion and the caring, we can be taken advantage of. And maybe it's safer for me to show more emotion, but there's no way before I lost my arm, I would speak like I share the thoughts I share now. So, if I showed my vulnerability and shared my softer emotional side, the way I grew up, I'd have been punished for that as being weak. And so those times alone after injury allow me to think about who I really was. And I, I think, I think I became stronger when I became more vulnerable. And that's hard to explain, but the fact is that that's who I am. You get it all. I'm not hiding anything. And I'm a champion for myself, but I gain strength by being a champion for others. I, I became a better person after I lost my arm, and purely because I had the ability to stand in others shoes and see life through someone else's eyes rather than just my own. Here's what lies ahead in part two. And so when the gun went off, I got up. I was on the line, I got up and I did it. And I sucked. I was not good. I was, I was mad the whole time I was running. I didn't like what I was doing. I was, I could be better than this. I could beat some people, but I got crushed. But when I finished, the first time in two years, I was proud of myself for doing something. Something that I was scared of doing. I exposed myself to that failure and I, I gained from it. I felt alive. I felt part of the community. I filled a void with something that I've been missing. Activity, camaraderie, sweat, heartbeat. It's all the things that you probably can hate. And I found out that I loved it. And from two years went by, all I needed to do was put my shoes on and go for a run. If I knew that, life would have been a lot easier. Please subscribe to Beyond for the next story of humans doing inspiring things against the odds. This is Eric Gilsonen. Triathlon literally saved my life. I hope it can do the same for you. Beyond is brought to you by Hoka One One and Iron Man.